Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the past couple of months, we have been interviewing the leaders of the smaller parties in the Dáil to ask them about their plans as they start to prepare for the next election cycle. All of those parties have been in opposition, of course, but the largest of all the smaller parties in terms of its representation in the Oireachtas and at local government level is, of course, the Green Party. And it is also, of course, the only one of these parties which is currently in government. So today I am delighted to welcome Green Party leader Eamon Ryan to the studio. Very glad to be here. Uh, Harry McGee is also here with us. Harry, not sure if you're the good cop or the bad cop here today. Um, I'm always the good cop, you. Okay, that's great. In your presence, I have to be the good cop. Yeah, well, that is two good cops because I really don't make a very bad cop. But anyway, let's see how how we go. I want to ask you, first of all, um, before we get into the nitty gritty of of government and policy and that, this is your your second stint in government. You're uh, almost two and a half years into it now. In your previous stint in government, after two and a half years, things were going so appallingly that this must seem must, must seem like a, an easy ride this time out. Experience helps like an anything. So, yeah, for me personally, being second time being a minister, you, all that learning in terms of how you run a department, how government works, it really helps. Um, my experience in that first time in government maybe was different to what others might perceive it because actually we were a very cohesive team in government in, in the Green Party. We were really strong together and while it was very difficult, very hard times, you wouldn't want to be there, we all lost our seats. But there was something actually even in that, that there was a collective sense, well, we we didn't, um, we worked together right to the end. And was actually, there a sort of an in the, bu- in the bunker mentality, we're all well, in it together? In the bunker, but actually as well, like you were doing what we were doing in the national interest. And actually, I would argue looking Subsequently, it worked in terms of, like we were in a very deep economic crisis. We, the country came out of it mainly because of the strength of the Irish people. But I think the policy decisions to to help that did work, and uh, and I think that unity we showed in government is something that stayed with me. That you know you um, you work well together when you when you work as a team, and even in very difficult circumstances. Uh, that are especially in difficult circumstances. It was strange then going into government this time because when we left, it was crisis. Like there was nothing like the crisis, financial crisis for government in 2010, 2011, except when we came back in in 2020, actually it was similar. COVID was a similar. I remember coming back in and thinking, this is familiar because if people remember that, you know, the first half of 2020 when we didn't know what COVID was going to do and there was quite a similar sense within government of urgency, needing to act fast, needing to be cohesive. And so it was strange, like not only was it coming back into government a second time, but I was coming back into a crisis second time. And that sort of previous experience helped. You kind of, you get us, you, you kind of keep your head down, don't, don't, uh, don't panic. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think being in government before helps. It gives you just experience helps. And then as a party leader and from the Green Party perspective, you've led the party for, I think, more than, more than, 12 years now and you you led it out of, as you say, a, a position in which the party lost all its seats in 2011 and you led it back to 
becoming the largest parliamentary party in the in the history of the party at the at the last election. When we're in this series of conversations with smaller party leaders, the question of the survival of the party is always somewhere in the ether for for a small party. Um, and for the Green Party, it seems to me. There was never a question that the Green Party was not going to survive because there are Green Parties everywhere now for, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think it is different. I, I, I think if if we shut down tomorrow, there'd be another Green Party the day after because there is a, it's, it's a philosophy or it's an understanding of reality in this world that we are um, destroying the natural systems that we depend upon, that we we need to protect them and in doing so protect ourselves and, and there's a social justice goes with ecological justice. And there are, there are four principles uh, in the Green Party. That first one of uh, protecting the environment. The second one that, as I said, social and ecological justice go together. The third principle, um, we, we, it's a pacifist party. Uh, it came from an anti-war roots. But that also extends to the nature of politics. It's not an aggressive. It's not a derogatory. It's not a uh, doing down the other politics. And lastly, it is one that believes in politics, believes in democratic participation, believes in in constitutional democratic systems. And so the first Green Party of all was set up in Tasmania. I remember I met the leader and uh, one of the leaders and she was saying to me those four principles. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty much still where we're at. There is a Green Party in every country in the world. We work in a very strong European Union Green Party structure, but also part of a global Greens. So that issue about survivability... When, Put aside the size issue, but is there going to be a Green Party? Yes, because I think the conditions that we live in in the world today require it and people sense that. And therefore, there is a representation that always comes up to meet that need. Harry, one of the things that that strikes me is, yes, that it might be different now, but the, the more this government goes on, the more I'm coming to the view that the disposition to the Green Party, especially in rural Ireland, hasn't changed that much. Uh, we had Michael Fitzmaurice in the past couple of weeks talking about uh, establishing a rural party that was essentially anti-green. A lot of antipathy still to the Green Party uh, from those involved in agriculture, forestry, farmers. Uh, if we look at what happened uh, with the initiative to ban the selling of turf uh, and the taking of turf last year, uh, there was a, a lot of reaction to that negative reaction. It seems that, that this... Um, uh, this um, picture of the Green Party as essentially a, a middle class uh, party based in urban areas in the suburbs uh, with no reach into rural Ireland uh, still persists to this day. I fundamentally disagree. I don't believe that's the reality. In, in, sorry, it, it's very much uh, uh, how we're, we are depicted. Uh, and yes, we get stronger votes in some urban areas versus rural. But where we see it is actually we should we are at centre stage in what's needed for the future of rural Ireland. And we have representation right across the country. We, we have groups now getting ready for the local European elections, particularly in May next year, in every single county. And it's really important for us that it is a national. It's right across the board. And I would say also, I, I don't buy it that the Irish people um, in rural Ireland don't want to 
be part of this green future. I don't accept that. It's not my experience. I spend a lot of time traveling around the country. I've always, all my life done so. And that's like, there's no difference between people in rural Ireland and urban Ireland. I don't buy that. There was a very detailed study done by the EPA, very large, extensive interviews with thousands of people across the country. Uh, it was on the issue of climate change, but that's one of the examples. And what it showed is a very small number of people in what you might call the climate denial phase. I think it was about three, four percent. Over 80% of people in the country wanting to take action, want to be part of a change. And there was no difference between rural and urban. There was no difference between young and old. Come back to that fundamental reason for a Green Party, that sense of our connection to nature and the importance of, of that world around us for our, for our being, our very health and so on. That is the same for someone in a rural setting as it is in an urban. Why should it be different? Why, you know, human beings are not that different. Most Dublin urban people, you scratch a dub, like me, you find a farm a generation or two back. Like this kind of depiction of there's a division between rural Ireland and urban Ireland, I don't accept. But so and how then do you, do you account for the fact that, I mean, because I think what Harry's talking about here is that if you look at the, the strongest opposition in the Dáil, to uh, to climate change action and the policies being pursued by the, by the Green Party. It is backbenchers, rural backbenchers in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael within the government and it's independent rural uh, rural TDs from outside. So, there, I mean, on the face of it, um, what you describe as the, you know, as the absence of a rural-urban divide is not reflected in the Dáil. Is that a failure of the political system or what's going on there? I think it's a, sec- a recognition of a number of things. Firstly, we are about delivering change. Like, we are about changing... A whole range of different systems, but including that, the agricultural system. And, and it's understandable that in, in in driving and pushing through change, people maybe would look to represent, well, no, we don't want change. Or, 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 or we prefer to keep uh, what we have in place or, or to depict that change as something that is fearful or is disadvantaged. So is there a gap between the overall commitment, the aspiration to addressing climate change in the general and the particulars of what might be involved in that when it comes think, to personal think, transport, development, whatever it might be? I think that fear comes maybe from a fact that actually that a lot of those rural communities are ill-served by the current system, particularly a lot of those farmers who whose income is not matched the growth in incomes in other parts of the country. And they understandably look on and say, how come we're not getting some of that, uh, some of that wealth that has developed in Ireland over, over, over recent decades? And I think that actually is a case for the system needing to change. Like those farmers, we farm young macro-farmer people walking up from a tide overnight and up to Dublin today and saying they want more uh, uh, services and investment in rural Ireland. And I agree. And I think the investment, the best investment will be in the protection of nature. That's actually where our natural systems are with the greatest potential in restoring nature. And and so the paying for that, um, you look at Kerry Group today, what's the profits they announced today? Was it three point something billion? Well, I think some of that profit needs to go back to protecting nature. Uh, And for us particularly... If we have not succeeded in terms of getting that message across, well, then we need to change. You start by listening. You start by not doing engaging in this as a divisive political game where you're kind of uh, one plays off the other for electoral advantage. That won't work. The scale of the change we need to make is so great that we need to bring every section of society with us and work with every section of society and particularly rural Ireland. That, that community, I think, is the one that's going to benefit most from us going green. There, there's, a, there's an expression in Irish, Gia or Nia, a hoax or a It takes a long time to build the castles and a lot of the policies 
that that the Green Party are propagating in government will take like like housing. They'll take many years uh, before they reach uh, completion and fruition. And um, in the meantime, there's so much resistance to them. If you look at the issue of water quality in Ireland, 50% of our water courses uh, have uh, have have major problems in relation to uh, pollution. A lot of the, that comes from agricultural runoff. Uh, there's been relatively patchy uh, uptake of the kind of the environmental measures that have been introduced the past couple of years, such as multi-sword grass, uh, protected urea uh, and so on. Uh, I know the forestry plan, which is quite ambitious, is quite early uh, at the moment. But that, that turning that ship just takes so many years. And when you look at the emission figures and when you look at for, for sectors, especially for agriculture and for transport, they are actually not really uh, turning uh, as yet. And we wonder, when will we reach peak emissions? When are we going to get to a situation where emissions will actually fall in a meaningful sense? I wish I had an Irish version quote to come back to you, uh, Harry, but I, I, the best I can do is Bill Gates, uh, where people overestimate what you can do in a year, but underestimate what you can do in a decade. And change is coming. And I come back to what, that thing about agriculture and rural Ireland. Agriculture does need to change. Like, there's no two ways about it. That reality that we've gone from 500 pristine rivers down to 20, like, that has to change. That has to start. I grew up, as I said, I grew up a lot of time down in West Cork. I grew up swimming in rivers in the Sulan and others outside Macroom, where, which was full of fish. And now, I was down, I was out west last few weeks, saying we've no anglers, there's no tourists because the fish aren't there. And it's not just for angling or for tourism, but it's that sense of uh, we've lost something in the loss of the loss of those clean rivers. And that has to change, that we, ha- we have to reduce the amount of excess nutrients and actually in doing that, save money in farming. So, yes, that needs to change, as with so many other systems. But then on the one hand, we're, we're, we're moving towards that, but on the other hand, we're getting exemptions to the nitrates directive, for, for example, and a report from uh, a, a, the Department of, of Agriculture itself uh, a few years ago, the Department of Housing actually, uh, was saying uh, that compliance with the nitrates, with, with the rules of the nitrates directives, uh, has been very loose, to say, put it mildly. And that's what I think one of the most important things in our programme for government is the introduction of a land use review. We're halfway to it, through it. So we've done the research in terms of what's happening in our land, and now we need to engage with all stakeholders right across the country. I think we start that by, first of all, looking for principles we can agree on. Uh, looking to see what we agree on rather than what we disagree on. Start from that base. First agreement should be, we're going to have to pay people for the natural systems or protecting and restoring the natural systems. Secondly is we cannot tolerate our water has been fouled, our, our air pollution which is killing our people. We, we, we cannot tol- tolerate the loss of biodiversity and we need to restore that. Actually what you see when you start going down that path, nature comes back very quickly. Nature can restore itself and turn quickly. And it's the same in the other sectors. Pick of examples where I have a sense at the moment in government that the ship is starting to turn. We are starting to move in a more sustainable direction across a whole range of areas of Irish society because the Irish people want to do it and it'll only work if it's better for the Irish people. Give you examples. Public transport. We are unusual in Ireland in that we've seen a return to public transport far higher than other similar Western countries. Um, rural bus services went up about 30% last month. They doubled last year in the, in the numbers. Urban numbers are starting to come back. They're all above pre-COVID levels. And those things we've done in reducing fares, 50% for younger people, 20% for everyone, in, in, in a new rural bus service every week has been launched in the last year. And that's not going to stop. We're going to keep going. We're only warming up. 
And it's actually happening. People are switching because it works better. Similarly, when it comes to people's homes, we met our target last year of of improving, restoring, retrofitting 37,000 houses. And that's going to increase further this year. It is working. We've already put solar panels on 50,000 homes. And I don't see that stopping. If you talk to people working in the industry, their phones are hopping off because it's a better system. It is the way that Irish people do want to go. And and yet we do still find that we're falling short of our our legally binding targets, for example, our, our... Uh, decarbonisation target to 2025. We're not going to meet that, are we? So we'll be in breach. It's tight, it's difficult, but we we can and will, in my mind. Um, and I think the first easier bit will be in energy. Um, by the end of this decade, we will switch to 80% renewables. I see that as inevitable now because it's a better system, it's cheaper, it's more secure, belongs to us. Um, so I see that happening. Although there seems to be a lot of dispute and a lot of criticism about our speed in comparison with, with many other European countries mm-hmm. of our move, to we're particularly ter- to, to, to offshore wind. We're the third largest integration of renewables in Europe. And our system, where it's an island system, where we have to balance that, we're probably one of the leading countries in the world in balancing variable renewable power. So we can and we are and will be good at this. I think the second area that uh, in agriculture... That is, has been really difficult, but that too is starting to change. The numbers of organic farming since we went into government, we tripled the finance and the numbers farming have doubled. And that's only going to increase further. The number of people who applied for the new environmental acres scheme, there's 46,000 out of the 135,000 Irish farms have signed up for that. That's a sign. That's the real sign. Whatever goes on in the door, people shouting across the chamber... People are signing up in farms right across this country because they know that's the best future for the Irish family farm. In forestry, yes, it has been in real difficulty. The number of hectares planted has gone very low because the system was in real, it, it, it was not functioning well. Pippa Hackett has turned that around. She's introduced a proper system for registering, for managing, for planning the system. And once that European state aid approval goes through for the new 1.3 billion euro forestry scheme that she's put in place, that's much more protective of nature than the old monoculture clearfield system. That too is going to take off. The hard one is probably in transport in terms of meeting targets because transport's embedded in our systems over the last five or six decades, we're, we're having to reverse what was, as the an OECD paper said, a, a system that by design was car-centric, was not actually sustainable. Exurban sprawl and all of that. Yeah, and, and yeah. that takes time. But we're doing that. Like we're investing, all that money we're investing in active travel, in public transport, will bear fruit. It will take t- towards the end of the decade for it to really kick in, but it's not going to turn around. Can I ask moment. you just a related question to that? I mean, our colleague Pat Leahy, both in print and in this studio, has made the point on several occasions that the Green Party has exercised power in the effective way that small parties are able to do when in government in the Irish political system. Sometimes we've seen it in the past. And in this case, it's been by the establishment of binding legislation on this government and future governments to meet uh, to meet climate and, and environmental targets. But I do wonder exactly how that works. So your current spat with Dublin Port, which is an interesting question about how the port should develop and in what fashion over the next 20 or 30 years. And you've been critical of its plan as being too road-centric, among other things. Um, But what I wonder about that is there's a massive semi-state project planned for the next two decades or so. Why was that not, um, I suppose, sanity checked from the very start 
against these climate targets? Why does it require a Green Minister to step in and to criticise them? And, and what happens when there isn't a Green Minister there to step was in? It, that was way? it Richard Darthwaite wrote The Growth Illusion? There is this kind of sense that everything's going to grow forever and in a day. And that was embedded in economic thinking. But are there not now re- legal restraints on that kind of thinking? Or should, or should there not be as a result of the, of the legislation? Which there is are increasingly. But we ended up there. And, and, and I, I don't often go out public, I suppose, in that way. But I thought it was important because I, I thought when, within the consultation phase, I had to say what I saw as true. And the first truth is, it's not just about climate, but this concept that, like, just take Dunport, for example, 35 million tonnes of goods coming in and out every year and projected then, well, but that'll go up to 77 million tonnes. And a question I was asking, which has not been answered by anyone in a satisfactory manner to me, what are we going to be consuming twice of in 18 years' time? Are we going to be consuming twice the number of microphones or cups or phones or pads? I'm looking at everything in front of me here. Like, are we going to double what we consume? I don't think so. I, 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 I don't think we can afford that on the planet where there is finite limited resources. And, and particularly we're going to move and the smart way is going to move towards a circular economy where you reuse, you re- reduce, you reuse, you reuse and you recycle so that you don't just consume. Like we grew up in a world, you yourself from a similar age, where we, the wealthiest 20% of the world, consumed 80% of the resources. That will not be the future. We will have to develop an economy for us, the wealthier part of the world, where we get all our services and all our wealth and all our prosperity and all our health, but while we consume less. And that actually will be a better system. It it will actually be a cleaner system. It will be a more just system. And it is more economically efficient system. And that's the way the world is going. I think that's a very interesting view and one which I I personally have have a lot of sympathy for. But it's clearly not held at the highest level of major semi-state bodies like Dublin Port. Ah, no. I mean, and I'll persuade them around to that way of thinking. Really? Yes. Well, they're standing to their guns at the moment. They've issued the same statement three or four times saying that the, the, the the plans for port redevelopment are in compliance with all government policy and all EU policy. Yeah, but, uh, again, without going to specifics mm. of one teacher, but second, and this is a multifaceted issue, as so many issues complex are, even if, let's say, you accept, OK, we're going to double the amount of stuff coming in mm. at Dunport, well, firstly, mm. but are we not investing in Cork and Rosslare and Limerick and do we not need better balanced region development where everything doesn't come in out of Dublin? Mm-hmm. Um, but even just take the practical basis then, it's a roughly about an extra million truck journeys mm. a year. They're all going on to an M50 that I know as Minister of Transport is not going to be able to take another million trucks. It won't work. It'll be stuck in everyone, and everyone will be stuck in traffic in that in that way. So, so we can and will make that change. The, the, but, the railway line runs to the entrance of 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 the port uh, to terminate at East Wall there just before we get. And there's the railway lines that do go into the port. How, how much railway freight uh, goes in and out of the port at present compared to the? Road freight. Tiny. It's Nationally, we're at 1%. We're the lowest in Europe by country mile, a rail mile. And that has to change. And, but and, but and would it be possible to, to handle 33 million tonnes of inward goods solely by rail? Or would no. you need to have a combination of road and no, rail? No, combination. But not writing off rail freight. And, and I suppose that is a strategic question facing me as Minister. Because we have commissioned a, an all-island rail review. And, and it's looking at various aspects. It's looking like rail connectivity to Donegal, uh, high speed between Cork and Dublin, Belfast and so on. But one of the most interesting questions is, just think of the country. We have a, a rail line, well, from Rosslare to Waterford, we, we can reopen and will reopen. But from Waterford to Limerick, to Ennis, to Clare, Galway, right through up to Mayo. 
And that line, particularly from, let's say, Limerick Junction to Waterford, is not really used. It's still in operation, but it's got its, its, its tiny numbers and a trickle. of. And the question we have then is, OK, will we shut that rail line down or will we use it? And in my mind, we use it. Because if I was to build it new, it would probably cost about 20 or 30 billion. But having it there, it's an asset that we can use. And I believe if we go to every single, reopen that line uh, by doing the Athenry to Claremore section up in uh, north of Galway um, and do the section from Rosslare to, to Waterford. Now you have a rail line which connects Rosslare Port, Waterford Port, Port of Cork, Limerick Port. And I will go to every single multinational company on that route. Companies like Baxter, companies like Allergy, you name any of them, and say, you now, you know that you have to reduce your emissions as part of your corporate responsibility. And they're all buying into this because they see this as the future. I will give you a mechanism to get your goods exported out in a low carbon way. And what we will do then is trucks, electric vehicles taking the trucks from their factory to a local marshalling yard or a local train station where you have a rail freight service running a western, along a western Atlantic rail corridor that connects all those industries. Most of the big manufacturing areas in Galway, around Limerick, Cork, all are on that line and say to them, we have a low carbon way out to help you meet your targets. I'm absolutely convinced that they will buy into that and want that. And I think it would be criminal if Dublin was not the same, if Dublin wasn't part of such a national effort to reduce our emissions, to have a low-carbon solution. And also, that makes our transport system work because if you just put it on the M50, it will not work. And, and so it's, a, it's not just an aspirational thing, it's not just a climate thing, it's just the smart way of actually developing our country. Other countries are doing this. I spent a lot of time abroad, met, met the French minister, was talking to him about how are they thinking about doing it. This is the direction they're going. Talk to the top port companies in Hong Kong. They know something about how you run ports. They're doing the same way. So I have to bring that expertise or that vision to Dublin Port and our other port companies. That's my job, is to lead, to give a certain sense of direction, a sense of think big, think outside your own immediate box, think nationally and internationally about where we're going. And that's what I was doing when I went out. So so listening to what you're, to what you're talking there and the, the, the picture which you're painting, which is of, of radical change in the way that we run things um, and accompanying that radical use of changes of infrastructure, radical investment, capital investment in that infrastructure, rail, for example, as you've, as you've just described. And yet, it, it seems to me, I don't know what you think of this, it seems to me that we find, your, we find ourselves with a political system which now, and for the last few decades, has proven itself incredibly inefficient at delivering that kind of major infrastructural change. You look at the never-ending saga over various forms of Metro North over the last 20, 25 years. And in Dublin, you look at the frankly, the shambles that is the that is the planning system at the moment. I mean, is there a systemic problem if you're in the if you're in the business of implementing this kind of infrastructural change with the way things are done in Ireland? I don't see our country as that. I mean, I think any measure you look and see, where is our country placed? I know it's a clear it's not just because we're in government now it's this, but I just think generally like we we have a very successful country. We we, we private wealth and public squalor is a phrase. We have the longest used. life expectancy in Europe. That's the first measure into how long do we live? Longer than anyone else in Europe. We have the last three budgets in this government. It's been socially progressive. We, the first thing we check every time before we sign off on the budget is, are we looking after those who are in lowest income? Yes, there's income disparity, but the social and safety net, the safety net and the taxation net we have do address that and try and restore 
uh, a sense of social justice. So we're not. And yes, there are problems in our country. Lord knows the housing crisis is real and has to be adapted. Yes, we are incredibly slow. I've been involved in Metro for 25 years and pulled my hair out as to how long it's taken in that time. But our planning system is not completely dysfunctional. On Board Penal and the local authorities, the broad structures we will keep. We do need to modernise the legislation. We do need to make sure that not everything is stuck and delayed in court and costing a fortune in court. We do need to make sure that this legislation, which I think is really important that we will introduce uh, in, the, in the next few months, actually have streamlined that planning system because there is, it's the slowness and the delay, not the not that you throw out on board Pernola, not you throw out our local government systems. If anything, we need to resource them is the, probably the key issue. It's interesting. One of the reasons I stand up for our country, we do work in partnership. Like I know I'm working doing this in government. So do, um, we work with unions. We work with the employers. They say this. We work with the environmental NGOs. We work with uh, all the different civil societies as a culture in this country. What the employers and unions are saying in unison is that our state needs to be bigger, that the success of our country and our economy, which has seen almost a massive increase, almost one million additional people in the workforce, has not been matched by similar extension of the public service. So, yes, we do have a problem. And maybe the financial crisis left a legacy in that where for 10 years after that we were terrified of budget surpluses or budget deficits and uh, and keeping everything tight. Well, some would argue that there was an ideological prejudice against greater state, state intervention, particularly in housing, and that we're suffering the consequences. I think you're right, and I think that has changed. There's a clear understanding and agreement that our state needs to be bigger. We need more people working in Umbor Panola. We need more people in our local authorities. I've spent the last two years going around to every local council. I was in Carlo last Friday, I'll be in Longford this Friday, listening to what the officials are saying, to what the councillors are saying. And we do need to invest in our public state services to be able to deliver what we need. But for, for all the difficulties, and there are problems and challenges, I can point to you of examples where we're actually delivering. If you look in broadband, we are now, if people ask people, where are we in the broadband league table, you know, in com- comparison to European countries, we're right at the top. And within five years, we will have fibre to every home. We will have one of the most advanced digitally connected countries in the world, connected to what will be one of the most advanced renewable countries, energy countries in the world. So there are areas where we've shown we can deliver. We delivered my motorway network. Now, I didn't think it was the right investment. I would have preferred us to deliver in the public transport system. But if we can apply the same vision and determination and delivery that we did in the motorway network to a public transport network in the next 10 years, that will transform the country. And it's first and foremost prioritising investing in Cork, Galway, Waterford, Limerick, so we get better balanced regional development. It is investing in housing close to that public transport so you don't have to, everything doesn't have to commute long distances. And then you're a long way towards getting a sustainable country that's low carbon and socially just. So it's not impossible. Just quickly, how under-resourced are our local authorities and agencies and bodies like on board Planola in your estimation? Are we talking about deficit of thousands of public servants? I don't always agree with Michael McDool in the Irish Times of a, of, a, of a Wednesday, but he's in there today saying what we did, unfortunately, in our local authorities, we undermined their capability to deliver. It's in the engineering, it's in the water services, it's in the, it's in the technical planning administrative system is where we are 
under-resourced. So I, I think that's where we need to, to invest. And are we talking about hundreds or thousands of additional... No, we're talking thousands. We need to scale up our state in a way that to, to match the, the, the success of the country. The, like, I mean, our country, people and people say, oh, it's terrible, everyone's emigrating. They're not. People are coming into this country in very large numbers, including Irish people coming home. So we need to scale those services up to be able to make sure we can do that in a way that works for the copes with the increase in population which, which we're seeing. I want to turn to the position of, of the Green Party itself. As I said at the outset in the run up to the next election, which will be at some point in the next year and a half or so, probably. Um, Harry, I want to ask you, actually, first of all, I mean, there was a kind of wobble in the early days of this government and there was there were questions of, of the leadership of the party which were resolved and there was generally a perception that there was a split between two wings. Eamon mentioned earlier on that that one of the four pillars, I think, of the of the Green Movement was was around questions of, of social justice and the way that that related to environmental questions and that seemed to be where the, where the sharp point was on those. Then everything went quiet, but how's the party now? Um, yeah, it, I, I think the first year of the party in government was a difficult year, and of course, it coincided um, with um, the with the onset of COVID. Well, toward, towards the end, to, towards the end of that first year, and I mean, firstly, there was a very big and divisive uh, internal debate within the party on entering coalition or not, and there was a, a minority of the party who didn't favour going into government and. They remained quite vocal in the wake of the Greens going into government and there were difficulties in relation to direction and difficulties in relation to ideology. And we had something that we hadn't really seen in the Green Party before. We also had personality clashes and they became apparent during the course of uh, that year. So several people left the party. Uh, a ginger group uh, was formed, uh, which which is kind of separate from the party, but has a connection with it. And some of the members of that are, are not members of, of the Green Party. So it has a kind of semi-detached uh, relationship with the, the party. Um, things, I think, came to a head when uh, Hazel Chu decided uh, to... Uh, to put her name forward to, for the Shannon by-election uh, as an independent candidate. And that led to a, a, a spat within the party. And I'm being quite euphemistic in terms of describing it. But once you think it was that, more than a spat? Yes, I think it was. But once that issue was resolved or came to an end, I think things quietened down considerably after that. And the party has been on a relatively even keel since then. Even though you can see uh, uh, some of the, the fault lines uh, emerge with little tremors uh, occasionally. Now, there are some people within the Parliamentary Party uh, who have had difficulties uh, with Green Party direction and Green Party policy. Particularly Nasa Harrigan. Nasa Harrigan. And Nasa Harrigan has lost the whip for 15 months now, which is quite a big sanction, but it's not the first time that she uh, voted against Is that an excessive sanction, Eamon? 15 months. It seems That's like a very long time. by the Parliamentary Party and... Uh, and um, no one wanted it and, and it was not in any way personal but it, it was the way of us deciding how we maintain our strength in government because one of the things that I think is rings true for a lot of us when we sent, signed up to this government we did a very long detailed negotiations on the programme for government which is very important in terms of what you can actually deliver and I recall always the head of the European Green Party, Philippe Lambert, a very experienced Green Belgian politician, saying it was the greenest programme for government he had seen. And that gives us real power to be able to deliver and implement change. And that brings us together because, and it's interesting because we're not the only Greens in government, it's about six governments across Europe and Germany and Austria and Belgium, Luxembourg, elsewhere, 
where there are similar coalition arrangements, you know, three parties in Germany, others. We probably have one of the more stable coalition arrangements because, uh, and also we have real power in this government to be able to deliver and effect change for the good and, and for all our people, not for any just the people who voted for us. Well, but does that mean then that the eviction ban or the lifting of the eviction ban, which was which was the point at issue with Nasser Harrigan's um, suspension, does that mean that that was a sort of a quid pro quo for all those good green policies which you would argue have been put forward by the government? In other words, you know, would, would the Green Party... Uh, absent that, that political pressure, would it have voted for no, lifting the eviction government, you're in government for everything. And in housing, while it's really challenging... So you think it was the right thing to do? I believe it was. But I believe what's more important was the right thing for what we launched yesterday, which is a major expansion of cost rental housing and a major investment in restoring derelict and vacant buildings across the country. That's central Green Party strategy. I remember being on the lonely uh, opposition benches seven years ago saying we need to fundamentally change our housing system so we have a new strand of housing, this public housing that's open to everyone, cost rental housing, which is 25% cheaper than the the market, but is in the market. And when I say we have power in government, with the ability to introduce and deliver that now at scale, 5,000 houses that we will be delivering in the next short number of years in government, um, that's what the power is, is to be able to deliver for people what you promise. And that's what we're doing. And it's not just in that area. I could go through each of the different areas, not just in our own ministries, but in other departments. You have to influence government, not just within your own remit, but in every area as best you can. Does the LNG terminal issue have the potential to cause division within the party? Uh, there is uncertainty now as to where the party is going to uh, end in terms of, of government policy. There's been talk that the Greens might accede uh, to an LNG terminal uh, on grounds of security, of supply. Surely if that were to happen, that would be something that would foment division with, within the party, would it not? It would, it would, because critical. The environmental movement has learned a lot in the last five, ten years. I, I go back to being very influenced by Bill McKibben. I don't know if him, he's the head of 350.org and, and he and others made, uh, kind of came to a view, which I think is correct, for too long, the environmental movement, like other areas, maybe thought, oh, the market will deliver some of the solutions we need. If, if you consume differently, we'll solve the environmental problems. And they realised that that doesn't work. That actually puts all the pressure on the individual. And it, they, like you've got a global problem on the one hand and you're saying, oh, I change my light bulb, it's sorted or not. It was an impossible equation to get people to, 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 to kind of, it didn't work in so many different ways. And they realised that what you need to do is start tackling the source of the problem. You keep the fossil fuels in the ground. You stop at the supply chain. You stop at the wellhead, at the, at the mine and so on. So this campaign that we've been involved in for 20 years and we've been delivering in this country by saying we do no more exploration of oil and gas, we do not frack for gas in our, on our land, even though there may be shale deposits up in the likes of Leitrim and Roscommon. Um, that we do actually start, we, we don't import frack gas from distant locations. So yes, that issue is hugely sensitive. We will manage that in a way that I believe does not see that become a point of division within the environmental movement, which is important, while still providing security for our people in terms of gas storage. But it will not be a commercial ever expanding. Go back to what I was saying to you earlier on, Hugh, about, you know, well, of course we buy in because we're always going to keep growing. Everything's going to keep flowing. No, it's not. We need to restrict the volume of gas and, and fossil fuels. But there fuels are practical and pragmatic realities about energy security, particularly in the age of a major war in Europe and some of the consequences that have arisen for that. It does strike me that I think it was John Maynard Keynes who said that when 
when the when the situation changes, I change my opinion. Yeah, and when I look at the position of some Green parties around around Europe, I mean, one of the great achievements on one level of the German Green Party is the fact that nuclear power has now ended in Germany. But one of the downsides of that is that Germany is still, you know, a, an enormous high carbon economy, more so than it would have been yes. if that policy had I, not been pursued. I, I was with my German colleague the other day, Robert Habak. And we were chatting about this and, and we're agreeing what's happening is, is actually in response to the war, it's an acceleration of the renewables revolution. Like last year, 83% of all the new electricity production in the world was renewable. Solar and wind are way below any of the other main fuel supply, including gas, coal and our nuclear as the cheapest. And they're the most ubiquitous. So they're available everywhere. So what when I was, I was meeting Robert at this offshore conference in, in Belgium, we're going to go off into the ocean, as are the Germans and Dutch and others, and a massive increase in expansion in that sort of power supply rather than in gas and coal and oil. Yes, Germany is continuing to run certain coal plants for longer than I, or I'm sure they would like to do it, but people misread. If people read and say, oh, the response to the war is a return to coal. No, it's not. Nor is it would it not have been better off to retain those nuclear power plants? That was their political decision. They probably had similar pressures in terms of various, not just in the Greens, but in other political parties. That was a commitment they'd made to their people. Uh, it might have reduced the carbon uh, or the uh, carbon intensity for a per uh, period. But what Robert heard him say the other day, the equivalent of those offshore wind is the equivalent of 300 nuclear power plants, which they're planning to build and are starting to roll out and really deliver. And that's the like that's what's really happening, and the new industrial revolution that's taking place in line with the switch to a renewable system is between variable demand and variable supply. And countries that are good at that balancing act, and Ireland is one of them, is going to be the centre of this new industrial revolution. That's the that's what's happening in the world, and that's where the money is going. That's where the, all the best engineering uh, tech brains are going. And, and and people don't understand, and the war is just accelerated. How long will that industrial revolution take? I mean, reconfiguring the ports, getting the technology, for floating it'll turbines. Take, it'll take decades, but, yeah. but, but it has to start this decade. But, but will we see floating wind turbines serving the Irish grid by, say, 2035? Oh, before that. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. If you look at what we have in terms of we have two, we have the wind power to the west and north of Ireland is phenomenal. It's about 13 metres a second, whereas the wind in the North Sea is about eight or nine metres a second. So we have a fundamental advantage. You know yourself, Harry from Galway, like I was out in Baffin over Easter, the wind never bloody stopped. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have that resource. We no, have they talk about North Mayo being uh, the only place inland in Ireland that it has ocean strength uh, winds does, coming yeah. into it. But we also have, we've got deep water ports like the Shannon Foynes, like the Cork Harbour, which already has industrial infrastructure. So the likes of Money Point, Agnes Illumina, uh, Shannon Airport or Cork, we have the pharma refineries. It'll start first in, in those areas because that's where you both take the wind out or the, you deploy the wind turbines out from, but it's also where you bring the power ashore. So um, absolutely, there was, there was eight prime ministers at this event on Monday. There was uh, nine energy ministers, everyone agreed. And the truth is we're in a race, not just in Europe, but we're in a race with America and China. So all three of the major economic industrial areas in the world are investing and in going in this direction. That's why it's it's game over. It's going to be renewable. It'll be hydrogen from renewable. And it'll be balancing capability for the use of that power is where the new economy is growing. Can I just ask again, just on the LNG terminal issue, I mean, do you support it? 
I don't believe we should introduce a commercial LNG terminal. Mm. Uh, we will have to look at a short-term uh, tra- storage system to meet our gas security needs, but not any of the not any of the what's been uh, proposed in terms of major expansions in LNG for commercial uh, use. No. And then on a couple of, if if you don't mind, the grooming minutiae of day-to-day politics, mm. obviously an issue that's, you know, that's currently in in the air is about the position of uh, the junior minister, Niall Collins. Um, if, as has been reported, uh, he didn't recuse himself from the planning meeting, uh, which I think, Harry, you were writing about in, in, in the Irish Times today, um, and that planning meeting was addressing an issue of the sale of a piece of land, which his wife had expressed an interest in purchasing. Um how serious is that? He should have accused himself. I said that yesterday, and and uh, and I think he 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 uh, he does need to go in and explain the circumstances of that. Um, the property. I mean, I read Harry's article this morning already, and uh, it it's clear you know it was sold on in the open market. It wasn't an immediate kind of a closed sale. Um, I think he should go into the doll and uh, and explain that, and uh, if necessary, answer questions. But. Uh, uh, it's we're, we're into technical legal issues as to whether was it in breach of any law. It does not seem to me it was because, as I said, fundamentally the legal situation is the property was sold from at the later council meeting. But he should have recused himself in that meeting. Everyone agrees to that. Yeah, there's been disagreement in relation to whether it breached the law or not. I think uh, Section 177 of the Local Government Act doesn't really refer to a planning process. It's in relation to declaration of interest by a public representative. And it says for any issue, be it a planning issue or be it any other issue, uh, that I think there is an onus on public representatives uh, to state if they have a pecuniary or beneficial interest. Uh, and once they have done so, they have to withdraw from the debate particular to that. And I think that, that and the argument has been made by Paul Murphy and others, and I tend to agree with them, that that probably applies to this situation as well, irrespective of the planning issues that are involved. But is a breach of that? What, what does that constitute? Does that constitute a breach of the law or of advisory regulations? Well, if, if it's, a, if it's regulations? a breach of, of Section 177, so, I mean, you have to comply with the with the section. And if you don't comply with the section, you're in breach of the law. And what are the consequences there are of that? Section, I don't know exactly what the sanctions are, but I think the sanctions are the same for any law. Ultimately, I think, you know, if somebody isn't complying or somebody hasn't repaired their hand as such, I think that you can go into punitive sanctions, uh, I, including I, criminal I, I, sanctions. I'm sure those legal implications will be parsed and parsed again over the next few days, but it all smells pretty bad, doesn't it? And it comes after a number of other stories which feed into a narrative that there is a there is a political class which is on one side of the increasing divide in Ireland between those who have assets and those who don't. And I would hate that to happen because that uh, would undermine faith and trust in what I believe is a is a strong and, and democratic uh, political system. We have done a lot in the last 20. Listen, no party stood up more against the corruption in planning that we saw, particularly in my city, you saw in Dublin. You, you, like, look at what was done to our city by the corrupt planning that occurred here in the 70s and 80s and 90s and and the damage that that did. Like the housing crisis comes, in my mind, emanates from that because it's not just number of houses, it's where and how all the services are provided with it. So like planning corruption was deeply destructive to our country and particularly to this city, I would argue. I think that has changed in the sense that firstly... It, there is very strict rules now. Like you don't, you cannot, we cannot get a corporate donation over 200 euros, I think is whatever the limit is. It's, so no one does. It, it, it's a, it's a, um, 
and you can run for election in this country. I can't remember exactly how much I paid in my last election, but it would be less than twenty thousand, I'm guessing, in terms of my overall expenses. And and you can get elected in that way because our country, unlike the states, are other countries where you see the the influence of money and corporate money and other um, interests in the political system. We don't have that. We've improved our system a lot, and I think we do have to hold the ground and make sure that there isn't uh, any return to those ways. But I don't believe, is the issue with Minister Collins in that category? I don't believe it is, but I think that's a subject that can be discussed in the Dáil. On one more issue, one more cabinet issue, because we you know, we talked about cabinet unity earlier on, uh, reports this morning that there are differences of opinion over proposed changes to abortion legislation following uh, following a recent report. Is that is that a live discussion? I think, well, no, I think we there was cabinet discussion as yesterday and leaders discussed it the previous week. And I think we're all in agreement that uh, that the report needs to go now to the both the HSE to look at the implementation of the, the very specific operational recommendations, which I think a lot of very good work has been done. And then the some 12, I think, isn't it, legislative provisions to go to the Oireachtas Committee, the Health Committee. I think our system in the Oireachtas has served as well. The Oireachtas Committee system in some difficult issues like abortion have served as well. So I think there's, there's broad agreement in Cabinet that, that it should go there now. There must still be a kind of a trigger memory in the Irish political system that abortion is a hot-button issue, Harry, presumably, whenever whenever it ends up on the news pages? Yeah, it probably is a less hot-button issue than it was previously. I think, the um, as we've seen, there's been a kind of a generational shift and I think the, the attitude towards uh, abortion from anybody under the age of um, 50, plus loads of people over the age of 50, uh, would be quite different from, the, from their forebears. And that was borne out by the referendum and its decisive majority and is borne out by consistent opinion polls. So you don't see this as being a major political issue of contention? I, I think I, I, I think the, the only area of contention would be in relation to the pause and I, I think that there are some members of Cabinet who will feel uncomfortable about this changing This is the three-day pause which it, is currently legally required. Yes, because that was, um, for, for those who changed their minds who would have been of a more, and I'm using the word with a, with a small c, conservative bent in, in, in the run-up to the election. They changed their minds and one of the things that persuaded them was the fact that there would be this three-day day pause and the likes, for example, of Simon Coveney and others uh, referred to that specifically. I think Simon Harris as well. So I think that they might have difficulty in uh, affecting changes to that particular provision so soon after the enactment of the legislation and so soon after the referendum was passed. And I think that that particular... Of, of all the uh, recommendations that were made by Marie O'Shea's report, I think that's one. That is the one uh, that will prove to be the most contentious uh, within the government. At the start of our podcast today, Eamon and I talked about how the Green Party were the largest of the small parties and obviously also in government. And thank you very much for answering all these questions because you get harder questions than the other parties got because they're not in government so they can uh, they can coast along on, on aspirations for, for the most part. But I do wonder, we've, we've discussed at length in this studio from time to time how the Irish political landscape was totally transformed really by the, by the, since the election of 2011 and the, the classic landscape hasn't returned and seems unlikely to return or a new landscape perhaps is emerging. Whatever that is, 
according to opinion polls anyway, you are now alongside an, a number of other smaller parties in the polls hovering around the 4 to 5% kind of a mark. And presumably we'll be competing directly with them, I think particularly of the Social Democrats and perhaps Labour, for the the last or second last seat in many constituencies the, the next time out. I mean, you've gone from, you know, hero to zero and back again in, in your political career. Uh, how much of a challenge is it for the Green Party to avoid what has traditionally been the fate of junior coalition partners at the next election? I think it will. Be, I, I think we will avoid it because, as I said, we're part now of a European political system. There, are lo- I think Irish politics has changed to more that European way, where there's up to ten political groupings in the doll. That's similar to most of our other, you know, the likes of Finland or Austria or Belgium, or, you know, countries similar in size to us. Um, and I think in a world where there is a, the destruction of the natural world is going to become central, not just obviously in, in addressing that, but also to the economic future, the agricultural future, the most important issue facing us all. I see no reason why we shouldn't go to one in 10 people voting green. And in those circumstances, we continue to have a real potential influence in Irish public life, both at local government level and national level. I aim to try and get 100 green councillors elected in the next local elections in May 2024. That's an ask because we have to go up in the polls somewhat, but I don't think that's impossible. I think it's actually local government. I think that's the real important one now to everyone to fixate on is the local and European elections. Just as I said earlier on, we need to resource our local authorities. We also need to put real store in our local council elections because that's where change comes in the, the sharp end of it. And what I'm saying around the country, as well as meeting councillors, is meeting our party and, and encouraging them, encouraging people to run and encouraging um, that actually, and going back to what we are saying at the very start, every place matters, every person matters, every council matters. There are councils in the likes of Kerry or Donegal or Mayo or can go right around the country where we don't have representat- representation at the moment where I believe we will have after the next local elections. And, and I think if we do well in the local and European elections, that sees us going into a general election in very good state. I think you had 40, was it 48 that was elected in 2019, 48? Mm. Uh, and you lo- I mean, some have, have left the party. You probably have about 40 now, mm. perhaps a little, li- little less than 40. So you're talking about a doubling of the numbers and then mm-hmm. some. But come back, we were talking about timelines earlier. You are saying how long does it take to change? And as you know, a week is a long time in politics. Mm-hmm. A year and two months is a very, very long time. And I think if we continue to deliver practical changes that improve people's quality of life, both in national government and local government, I see no reason why we shouldn't go, out, go into that election with real strength. And the last personal question to you, when we get past the next general election, you will have led the party through, I think, four general elections um, and you will have been the leader for 13 or 14 years or so. Will it be time to hang up your spurs then? Yeah, but I'm not I'm not thinking that way at the moment because I think I actually started this in my mind about 1979, about 45 years ago. I was 16-year-old. And I studied ecology in school and in a course that told us about the threat that risks if we didn't uh, see ourselves connected and the interconnections in our world. And everything since then has borne out some of the concerns that were raised at that time. I actually think now that there is a real chance of us avoiding the tipping points, the real catastrophic runaway climate change. But it requires everyone to to really play their part. And I'm I'm still absolutely focused on that and delivering as best I can. Eamon Ryan, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you so much, Eamon. Thank you, Harry. And that's it for today. Thanks also to Harry McGee. Our producer is Declan Conlon and our engineer is JJ Vernon. That's it from us for today. But we're going to be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. 